Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I'm your host, Avi Wolf. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change, a time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform, a time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's Conversational Corner, covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. You can find this and other episodes of Avi's Conversational Corner at Google Podcasts and on Amazon Music. This episode's topic for God and country. Our era begins with the end of one Protestant crusade to end slavery and ends with a great crusade to make the world safe for democracy. All throughout, America's identity as a fundamentally Protestant Christian republic was challenged by forces of secularism, scientism, and increasing religious diversity brought on by immigrants, all while more even more energetically seeking to impose a multitude of religious or religiously tinged visions of America as a country, as a nation, as a beacon. But what did it mean that America was a Protestant country? Who were those Protestants? And how did they band together and divide on these vital questions? With me today to at least scratch the surface of these questions is Dr. Miles Smith of Hillsdale College. Miles, welcome. Thank you, Avi. It's, uh, it's great to be chatting with you. Um, so uh, this, this era is one that has always interested me, so I'm 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 fascinated and curious by by where we will we will go today. Well, I hope you are pleasantly surprised. Uh, so let's start with uh, the most. Let's start with a, a a question. Let's say I have three um, would-be Alexis de Tocqueville. So visit uh, the country at the beginning, somewhere in the middle, and at the end of this period, and who is primarily interested in touring. Uh, the religious landscape of Protestant America. What would they find uh, in each period? What would have changed and what would have more or less stayed the same? That's a great question. I think um, the beginning of this period is so influenced by uh, the religious rhetoric that's coming out of the Civil War. Uh, that's coming out of uh, what, at least in the North, is seen as kind of the end of, of a sort of an abolitionist crusade. Um, slavery legally ends. And so at the beginning, you would have found yourself very much uh, in, in a, an optimistic um, rhetorical milieu where people are saying, look, we've finally gotten rid of, of a great sin. And that sin being, of course, chattel slavery. There's an interesting idea um, from a, 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 an author, a historian of the American West. Uh, his name was Elliot West. Um, and he proposed that, that the beginning of what we might call the Gilded Age should be viewed as kind of a, a culmination of what he called a greater reconstruction. Um, the first thing that's being reconstructed was... Uh, the Latter-day Saint Church in the 1850s. The army actually goes out to deal with polygamy, 
um, not officially polygamy, but of course that's a lot of the energy behind it is we're going to go deal with these polyg polygamous Mormons. Um, the the pillars, the twin, the two pillars of barbarism, uh, was a construction of the Republican Party in 1860, and they said that these two pillars are polygamy and slavery. So by 1855, there's sort of the idea that we've at least tamped down the power of Brigham Young in, in Utah, and by 1865, we've sort of we've gotten rid of slavery. And of course, that would go out into the West as a greater reconstruction of sort of Protestantizing, Americanizing Native Americans. So at the beginning, that's what you might have uh, gotten, a, a relatively victorious um, uh, rhetoric. In the middle, you have mass urbanization beginning. You certainly have the beginning of labor movements, and you have sort of people sort of figuring out how do we how do we unify uh, our Christian rhetoric with the fact that our cities are changing in ways that we've never thought before. I think of um, Jackson Lears's book Rebirth of America, who basically posits, and I think there's something to this that by 1875, 1880, the United States is at least at, at its high cultural level, a Protestant, militant, uh, militaristic, uh, nationalistic, and capitalist. And I think there's there's something to that. So in the middle, I think you would have had people saying, okay, we are this. How do we deal with the fact that we have immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe coming? We have Catholics who are starting to fill our major cities. Um, and at the end of the period, 1920, I think you would have had a lot of people um, quite morose. You would have people saying, well, that whole thing we did kind of failed. Uh, I look at a figure like Ernest Hemingway, uh, born in kind of the Protestant establishment of the late 19th century, sees World War One, and becomes disillusioned. And so the, the 1920, you would have had, I think, a lot of people sort of looking at what had happened in the West and, and even the United States as, as a sort of failure. Um, all our grand ideas failed. We couldn't actually create a world that was completely free, completely equal, um, completely Protestant, etc., etc. So that's kind of my shorthand way of answering what it might have looked like in the beginning, middle, and end. That's a great uh, uh, brief introduction. Um, so now that we have a general view of what Protestant Americans would have generally thought uh, in these periods, um, and I ask this as an outsider who often doesn't quite understand all the inside baseball I see on Christian Twitter. What did everybody was were all the the different Protestant groups and denominations were they really all that ecumenical or were there really critical issues on which they were divided? I ask this in addition not just the question of the different interpretations of the Bible and also politics, but for instance, uh, I asked Professor Samuel Goldman. In a talk about the wasps, I asked, you know, the wasps sort of self-anointed themselves as the leaders of Protestant America, but I honestly wonder just how other Protestant denominations felt about that. Uh, were they, okay, we'll work with you, you're pretty competent, or were they like, who the hell, who the hell put you in charge? That's a remarkably good question. I think that the answer is, 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 is twofold. There is unity in what they are not. So I think most Protestants are very secure in saying we are not Catholic. Um, we are not sort of, say, a member of, of the LDS. So we, we know what we're not. Once you actually look at what the taxonomy of Protestant is, 
though I think this is where the answer gets a little stickier. I think there's a tendency, at least among people who are serious Protestants and who are really committed to to Scripture um, and to to at least kind of the old Protestant distinctives of making Protestant synonymous with what's sometimes called evangelical. Um, and of course, Protestantism isn't a synonym for evangelical. You do have Protestant groups who are very distant from the sort of WASP um, establishment. I think of particularly Lutherans. Uh, Lutherans didn't view themselves as sort of a part of the club the same way maybe Presbyterians or Episcopalians or even some Methodists and Baptists did. So I think um, there's a remarkable variety among Protestants, even in an era where we sort of assume there was a kind of high Protestant culture that, uh, as, you, as you said, sort of had self-anointed itself as the, the guardians of, of Americanism, the guardians of what the American nation was. Uh, you have a lot of argument even within that uh, paradigm. Princeton Seminary is a good example. Uh, Princeton is an elite Protestant waspy place, and yet there's professors there that have really grave reservations about the Protestant settlement that follows the Civil War, the Protestant settlement that I mentioned, this kind of uh, white capitalistic militarist uh, uh, settlement. Mark Twain's another good example, a guy who's really quite thoroughly Protestant, even though he wasn't necessarily devout, uh, has a lot of sort of rancor towards this waspy settlement. Uh, if you've never gotten a chance to read his Battle Hymn updated, he just excoriates American imperialism. And so I think there's, on the surface, apparent unity, but, but below that there's actually qu quite a bit of disunity. People really disagree about what it means to be uh, Protestant America. And so there's a bit more debate, I think, than we typically assume. Speaking of debate, um, let's start with something which I forgot to mention the in, in the intro, but which I think uh, nevertheless touches on our issues and is kind of important. Um, before we get to cities even, um, one of the things which America saw remarkably and very strongly and very starkly was the uh, shift of a very important chunk of Americans from being people who generally uh, lived on a farm or who were what were called, called mechanics to becoming more members, not maybe not exactly like, but more similar to the uh, European industrial working class in France and Britain and later Germany. Um, and where some real serious social questions come up where you have to, you have to wonder, is it really enough to just encourage um, the, the owners to act charitably, uh, the big owners, the big robber barons to act charitably, which some of them do, or maybe to, to work for labor laws. Uh, and I was wondering, uh, whether and how the, deba uh, the debate within pro uh, among Protestants uh, played out there. That is um, a pretty essential question when, when, especially with students, we ask them to sort of talk about, you know, what is an average American? Is an average American a farmer? Is he a worker? Um, what is he? I think that uh, the United States begins to rapidly urbanize. I know we don't want to necessarily talk too much about cities right now, but it begins to rapidly urbanize. And so the idea of who the average American is really changes between 1840 and 1880. Uh, that generation is where you see this, this 
pretty considerable change. And so what's interesting is the intellectuals and religious leaders, they don't really catch up really fast. And so it takes them a long time to really frame a polemic towards this new generation of quote-unquote normal Americans. The normal American of 1840 isn't the normal American of 1880. And so I think my response is um, the, the, it's, it's a fairly feeble um, engagement w with this uh, because it happens, it happens so fast and um, they really take, take a while to catch up. So I know that's kind of not a great answer to your question. It, it sounds like a dodge, but I think, I think the answer is there wasn't a good answer from, from Protestant leaders, intellectuals, pastors, etc. Okay, they didn't have a good answer until, uh, until uh, by the time of the 1880s, but again, I say as an outsider, not really understanding the term, but I have turned heard the term the social gospel been tossed around. Did that have anything to do with that, or did that have to do with other things? That's a great point. Uh, one of the things I think um, to note is you're absolutely right. The social gospel becomes, is, is a part of this era. It's just a bit later. Um, a figure like Walter Rauschenbusch, um, who, who famously writes a work called The Social Gospel, um, it begins writing really about 1900, and his, his best-known books are written in the, in the 15 years after that. Um, he is a, a Protestant, he's a Baptist, um, and really committed to what we might call the social gospel. So there is a space in Protestantism, even 120 years ago, for the idea of the social gospel. Now, how much that squares with um, a sort of historic, a sort of unified high culture of Protestantism, I think is a different question. But absolutely, there's a social gospel being uh, taught by, by Protestants, particularly by uh, urban, urban Baptists um, like Rauschenbusch, um, Henry Emerson Fosdick. Uh, it could, could, could sort of fit this um, as well. So yeah, that's very prevalent. It's, uh, it's just a little bit later, uh, closer to the turn of the 20th century. Okay, you created a great segue for my next question, which is, like you mentioned, uh, urbanization is picking a pace. Not just immigrants, but Ameri uh, Americans from small towns are going into cities in search of work and fortune, or maybe they, uh, maybe they don't appreciate their small town. And uh, one thing I noticed just in passing when reading about when reading a great um, uh, book on Eisenhower, the age of Eisenhower, they mentioned how. Uh, his family, his ancestors, basically kept moving away from cities or anything like urbanization because it was considered like this great den of sin and iniquity and vice. And the further away you run, the further you run away from it, uh, the better. Um, how how much did, how strong did that uh, position hold? And how strong were the people who said, "Look, whatever you think of cities, yes, they have problems. Yes, there's sin. Yes, there's social issues." Um, but if we abandon the cities, then we're abandoning, you know, uh, not just immigrants, but all sorts of ordinary Americans who need our help and our advice and our counsel. That's a great question. One of the interesting things I think is you don't have a very powerful anti-urban um, polemic in amongst Protestant intellectuals before the Civil War. And I've always kind of been curious about this. Um, one of the reasons is because a lot of Protestant luminaries are from cities especially the guys who populate the, the prestigious seminaries and universities and colleges in the northern states, uh, particularly, they're all from cities. 
Charles Hodge, the president of Princeton Seminary, is from Philadelphia. He's raised in Philadelphia. And I think because of that kind of, you know, what we'll call waspy high culture, uh, cities in the United States uh, don't have the kind of, at least, uh, public image uh, as kind of denizens of vice um, until you get uh, large immigrant populations from Southern and, and Eastern Europe. What's interesting is the cities don't really change that much. There's some change, but it's not overnight by any means. But what you have here is, is a situation where Protestants are looking at cities and they're saying, oh, now they're denizens of vice. And why is that? Well, not necessarily because the laws have changed, but because there are now large populations of urban poor, large populations of urban poor who don't share the religion or language of the old Protestant uh, sort of elites. And so what, what can you do? Well, you can pour it to this sort of poor neighborhood that's full of Catholics or full of uh, yeah, Jews and say, oh, look, it's, it's, it's vice coming in. Well, it wasn't really vice. It's different. But because you can't really say, well, we're running cities. It must be us who've kind of made these places in, into you know, dens of vice or whatever. You have to point at this kind of other, right? And that other oftentimes was, was Jews and Catholics. Fascinating, yeah. It uh, it because because I remember uh, watching Gangs of New York and they show how nothing really changed even before the Irish came. There were there were criminals and crooks and whatever. So now that there's vice and they need to deal with it, what what were the approaches that they took to try and I guess clean up or reform or improve things uh, in cities around the United States? Well, I'm glad you mentioned Gangs of New York because I think visually that that film um, is 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 fantastic and how it kind of helps us see what you know what life at least in New York City uh, was like in the 1860s. Uh, what you have is a lot of um, urban urban reform movements. You have uh, temperance movements, so people sort of passing out tracts and uh, making, making temperance houses where you would say, okay, you're destitute, you're homeless, but you drink. So we're going to take you to this place where you can't drink, but maybe we'll feed you while you're here. And they did the same thing for prostitutes, uh, for, um, for orphans. And so you have a kind of push to reform the morals of urban populations. And that's really where a lot of the energy goes. Uh, and this is happening, by the way, in, in Great Britain as well, not just not simply in the United States. It's happening coterminously in Great Britain. And what you, what you have is that it's it's a real it's a morality push. If we can just make these people virtuous by changing their habits, we can maybe fix them from being you know whatever sort of um, you know uh, barbarian or sin, sin, sinner or, or whatever they might have been beforehand. What's interesting is there's not a real look at kind of uh, the structures of American economic life. And I think this is where you do have uh, Protestant thinkers, uh, uh, predecessors to, to men like Rauschenbusch say, wait a minute, isn't poverty caused by, say, a certain economic paradigm and not merely because this person's a bad person? And so you have that going on really after 1875 is when it really picks up, although it's definitely prevalent. Uh, by the time of the Civil War and beforehand, even by the 1850s. And I think a lot of this can be explained by scale. Um, in uh, 1840, 
Um, the largest city in the United States was New York City, and that was just the island of Manhattan at the time. It was, had 300 or so thousand people. By 1880, New York City had 1.2 million people. So you're talking about it's grown to be four times the size it was four years earlier. And so that has a huge effect. It's kind of a, a, a sort of a, a fifth rail or third rail, excuse me, to talk about scale having that much impact. But scale has a lot to do with it. Speaking of scale, once again, great segue. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about uh, with everyone talking about the state of religion in America today, without touching on anything uh, too specific, um, is uh, it's a wonderful book by uh, the late professor, professor of religion, uh, Peter Berger. Uh, I believe it was in his uh, in his, uh, his book called The Heretical Imperative, where he said that... Um, he said that everyone pays attention to, you know, the intellectual arguments against uh, religion, Spinoza, and uh, members of the um, certain members of the Enlightenment. Uh, but he talks about another form where people come come in from a small town, and this could have been true of an immigrant coming from a small town or an American coming from a small town, and they encounter they just encounter the reality of human diversity, people who, okay, they're a little bit different than them, but they seem to be pretty normal folk. And all of a sudden, the taken-for-grantedness of their own religion gets seriously undermined. And all of a sudden, they have to deal with the reality of diversity even long before DEI existed. And, uh, and in addition to that, you have, uh, like you said, cities are growing in size, but they're not just growing in size, they're also growing upward. And as I forget where I saw it, where someone pointed out that by the end of this period, it, by the, in the beginning of this period, some of the largest structures and buildings uh, in cities were religious structures. By the end of this period, many of them, many of these same buildings are vastly overshadowed uh, physically and perhaps metaphorically by what seem to be modern, uh, secular or religious neutral buildings. And I wonder whether anybody in, in among uh, Protestant intellectuals or, Pro or just Protestant communities were thinking, I wonder if we're being passed by for some reason. I think that your point about buildings is great. Um, one of the things that's, that's interesting is uh, the, the nomenclature surrounding skyscrapers. Uh, in 1914, the Woolworth Building is built. It's just under 800 feet tall. It's about 792 feet tall. Um, what do they call it? Uh, if you look at the Woolworth Building, you go to New York, it's still there, and you know it's this kind of neo-Gothic building. People called it a cathedral of commerce. And so I, I think this is really telling. Your, your point is really well taken. American cities after 1865 are oriented towards something, something different. Um, you know, they're small enough before the Civil War to have, to be dominated by public squares, civic life, and churches. After the Civil War, just the raw growth um, in, in, in numbers and, of course, just the, the growth in American capital power, right? And the American economy becomes so big. And so because of that, cities are oriented towards, towards uh, different things. You have uh, sort of a stripping down of, of, of uh, obscenity laws and Sabbath laws, not because people aren't obeying, not because people are saying, oh, let's be more obscene and let's forget about the Sabbath. But commerce is kind of crowding into civic life in a way that religion 
uh, or in a, in a place that religion occupied earlier. So I think your point's, point's well taken. I think a lot of that's just because of the raw economic growth of the United States uh, between 1875 and 1900. Um, whether that's even intentional or not is something I think historians are debating. Um, but it does happen. And so, yeah, your, your point's absolutely well taken. Beforehand, guess what? If you go to a city in 1830 or 1840, you're going to see a big church and a big square, and there's going to be civic life oriented around those things. If you come from the country 40 years later, you're seeing businesses. You're seeing places where you can make money. And so it's just a lot different. It's a massive change in a generation. So, given that, um, again, I didn't specifically mention it in my intro, but uh, I'm honestly curious. Uh, one of the most famous uh, figures of this period, uh, in a period where it honestly seems that, like you said, people seem to be swallowed up, uh, is a fellow named William Jennings Bryan, uh, the perpetual three-time loser who nevertheless made an indelible impact on American uh, political life and rhetoric. Uh, who seemed to represent almost the powerful, rural, and very deeply religious backlash to all of this. I mean, his most famous speech was literally, you shall not crucify us on a cross of gold. Um, how, how, did, how, did, how did Protestant America uh, take this guy in, aside from the political question of who they voted for? Brian's so fascinating for so many reasons. He's a devout Presbyterian. He's a committed Democrat. He's um, a committed liberal in the classical sense of that word. Um, and yet he's also a populist, right? And so I think that he's working out tensions along uh, about the same time that a lot of Protestant lay people are, that a lot of Protestant pastors are. Uh, Brian uh, isn't... I. He's not really uh, bef b behind or ahead of, of anyone. I think he's uh, sort of an exemplar. Um, and you're absolutely right. Uh, he gets he gets taken. He's popular. And I think it's not because people are looking at him and saying, "Oh, he's leading us." I'm glad he's he's out there up front. This. I think he's asking questions. He's looking at things and sort of confronting the same tensions that a lot of Protestant lay people are. And so I think instead of viewing him as a sort of leader a la a, a Andrew Jackson or an Abraham Lincoln or even like a Donald Trump, Brian is a voice. He is a voice for, in some ways, an older understanding of American Protestant life. <laughs> he has reservations about imperialism precisely because he's religious. Um, and so it's, a, it's sort of an older, simpler um, faith that's not as attached to the sort of um, the 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 hyper capitalist nationalist militarist um, white country that has become sort of the the national ideal. Uh, Brian doesn't reject all of those things explicitly. He's not an iconoclast, but I think he's there's tensions uh, in his mind with what he thinks the United States is or was and what it is or becoming. And so an example is he's from Nebraska. Um, what, what was Nebraska? Well, it was a fairly normal American place that was being peopled and, uh, you know, a frontier settlement, et cetera, et cetera, a process that had been going on for 
six or seven decades at that point, but that wasn't normal America anymore. Uh, Chicago, the Michigan Avenue had become normal America. Parkin Avenue, New York City had become normal America. And so he's kind of confronting the tensions, I think, along with a lot of his countrymen. Speaking of deep-seated tensions, um, there are two large, significant groups in this period who either intentionally or unintentionally directly challenge uh, the traditional, I guess, pre-Civil War conception of America as a white uh, Protestant country. And those are, as you mentioned, the immigrants and, of course, uh, the the freed blacks and the and the freed slaves, uh, some of whom still stay in the South even after redemption, but many of whom uh, migrate en masse uh, to the Midwest, which is the uh, nerve center of American in industry and capitalism, and who um, nevertheless would like to become Americans, but become Americans on their own terms. And uh, I'm curious how. I mean, aside from, I guess, probably, I'm sure some people had fantasies of, I wish they'd just go away. Um, how did uh, how did people, leaders, communities think about, well, where do they belong by, uh, in our world? Well, I think so much of the answer is, is regional, but you uh, we'll deal with the Midwest, um, I mean, the South's obvious racism and, and Jim Crow is, is, is well documented. But in a, in a place like the Midwest, um, there's, there's a lot of tension. Taya Miles is a historian who's just wrote, written kind of on the roots of black Detroit. And so I think what's interesting is that the, the process in the Midwest and even in the cities is not as different from the South as, as maybe we, we, we would think. Um, what is different? Well, there's no institutionalized racism. You don't have the type of black codes uh, that you do in the South. You don't have um, the the system of, of kind of de facto indenturing that goes on um, with with a lot of the tenant farmers. Um, nonetheless, like there there is racism in in, in the Midwest, and so the the interaction between African Americans and their neighbors in the North aren't aren't going to be completely seamless. And so you really have have black Americans. In the North, um, still having to struggle to become Americans, still having to struggle to have uh, sort of the same rights and social acceptance um, as as their white neighbors, the difference is the struggle is not quite as hard. Doesn't mean it isn't hard. I think we've kind of almost assumed, well, you know, blacks get to the Midwest and life is relatively easy. Okay, they don't, they're not lives aren't great, but they're not bad. No, it's, it's still a pretty tremendous struggle. But I think the bar um, is a little lower just because you don't have some of the old Southern institutional realities. Nonetheless, you do have um, sort of enforced uh, ghettoization of African-Americans in cities in the North. Chicago is a good example. Um, and to this day, right, you see the racial legacy of policing habits in Chicago and things like that. So Detroit, um, is, is another example, Cleveland, Ohio. So uh, there's there's a lower bar uh, to, to kind of acceptance, but it's still not um, easy, per se. It's, it, African-Americans really have to struggle, even in northern cities. But I think what's interesting is that there's a material legacy of that struggle and a civilizational legacy that's really remarkable and really beautiful still. 
I mean, uh, I live 80 miles from Detroit. You can still go to great jazz bars in parts of Detroit that maybe they're not as affluent as they once was, but they're still there. Chicago's the same way. Uh, Cleveland's the same way. Even in a place like Milwaukee, you have this material legacy of the Great Migration that's really important. And of course it lasts. Motown is half a century after the period we're talking about, but its roots are in that, that population that you mentioned that's traveling to these northern cities and making a name for themselves. So there's, there's a material legacy that they left um, that's really important. And a material legacy that's different, really substantially different than the legacy of Southern blacks. That's, that's a, a great summary. So with them coming, with them being ghettoized, with them creating culture, I know that, for instance, this is a little bit after our, our um, a little bit after our period uh, with the emergence of jazz and blues. I know a lot of, a lot of people had, even if you were to take away the racial overtones, they had a lot of real issues with jazz because it was like ostensibly freer and some even pe some some uh, some people even called it satanic and there were precursors of that uh, if i recall uh, for instance most famous of which being ragtime music popular uh, popular ragtime music uh so what uh what what how did how did um um like i'll call it mainstream protestant america react to this loosening if you will of the culture from something a little bit stricter and more rigid to something more uh, freer uh, a lot of it's the franchise um you know boof let's say you know it's 1840 we'll think about who the electorate in philadelphia or new york city is in 1840 okay well maybe you can pass an obscenity law maybe you can get something like that done um through, through democratization, you have different electorates in 1880 and 1890, and you have different people enforcing things. You have the, the rise of the first huge urban police departments in the Gilded Age. And because of that, you have uh, ch changes in enforcement, um, right? Think about the sort of thing that might have gotten prosecuted in 1840. Well, it may be way down the list on priorities in 1880 or 1890. Um, and so I think it's the material changes, and again, scale is playing a role here. Scale is, 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 plays a huge role in it. If someone's playing, you know, ragtime music in kind of like a speakeasy style bar uh, in the bottom of a building that's not easily viewed or easily accessible um, or even, you know, known to older sort of Protestant aristocrats who might have once had a say in how a city's governed, they're not going to see it, they're not going to know about it, so they're not going to be able to pass laws against it. All they hear is something, oh, you know, this ragtime is out there, or, or jazz music, whatnot. So a lot of it is, is just kind of based on, um, I don't, I don't want to say fear in the abstract, but, but, but a fear of change. And so um, you don't have policing of cultural markers, of changing cultural markers in the United States the same way you do in Europe at the same time. A great example is to look at, if you ever want to do this, it's a fascinating thing, go look at what um, the laws about 
decency and obscenity and whatnot are in a place like New York City or Philadelphia compared to Vienna, Austria, where city where municipal police in Vienna do regularly go into places and say, oh, you can't play that music here, right? By the law of the emperor, you can't do X, 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 X. So American cities, are, because they're bigger, because they're, they're changing so fast, uh, the Protestant, uh, Protestant establishment doesn't have the ability to imprint its will anymore, even if it would have wanted to. Great point. Um, so, if I may segue back to a previous question, uh, now that we've covered uh, how they, how they, how Black Americans tried to make their mark and how they dealt with them, uh, or how they tried to deal with them, um, let's get back to let's go back a little bit to to immigrants. Um, uh, one of the one nowadays we talk about uh, nowadays the big debate in America is about uh, school choice, about the about the reality of diversity, about how liberal neutrality or the pretense of liberal neutrality has basically run its course. But even in my father's generation, um, public schools were openly or at least implicitly aimed almost Protestant conversion factories or sounded like they were meant to be Protestant conversion factories. Um, what, how, did, how did this uh, movement pick up speed in this period? Because I know that by the end of it, compulsory quote-unquote public schooling uh, existed everywhere. Uh, and how hard did they try and how effective was that effort to effectively assimilate the next generation at least? That is a fantastic question. One of the things I think is is interesting is um, as especially the end of the 19th and the, and the beginning of the 20th century, you do have public schools um, sort of very purposefully affirm what I'll call kind of a white, broadly liberal, broadly Protestant um, uh, you know, intellectual and, and social ethos. Uh, I'd I propose um, that part of that is because there's an awareness that that ethos is dying. Um, and so you're, if you're you know, a white liberal Protestant and you're worried about Jews and Catholics, you are far more scared of Jews and Catholics uh, in 1890 than you were in, say, 1830 or 1840. Why? Because you know that they are, like, their numbers are rising and their social influence is growing. Whether or not it's a sort of a broadly affirmed social influence or not, you have places and cities where it's now valuable if you want to be elected as an alderman to be a Jew or to be a Catholic. I think a great example of, of, of this change is if you look at the first two men who um, were Jewish senators, both of them from the South, both of them without being prompted are, are converts to Protestantism, David Levi Uli and Judah, Judah P. Benjamin. That's not the case. 40 years later. In fact, there's a lot of Jews and Catholics who are like, you know what, I'm not interested in being a Protestant at all. Why should I be? My community is Jewish or my community is Catholic. So I think the, the, the way that the screws are tightened at the end of the 19th century is actually evidence of the Protestant establishment weakening, right? It's, it's sort of like a dying bear is the one that fights hardest. I think you can sort of apply that um, to the kind of the kind of waspy ideal, um, they kind of seeing the writing on the wall. Their their time may be up. So, 
as a final question, I may ask, um, it's, I think it's kind of ironic because it is at the end of this period where they ostensibly, ostensibly, secure their greatest victories. Uh, you have uh, the 1920 uh, passing the amendment uh, to prohibit alcohol throughout the entire country, and you have the 1921 and 1924 laws, which were the most restrict. I think, I correct me if I'm wrong, the most restrictive laws on immigration into the country ever passed. So, was it like kind of a a, a hail mary, a, a, a too little, too late kind of an effort? Because because you say that ostensibly when they achieve their greatest triumph, that's when they're the most morose. Yeah, so I, I think a, a um, thing to, to sort of to think about is federal culture, what you might call national culture, is, is still rather Protestant. And so um, you have the, the sort of the social machinery of Protestant church attendance and Protestant religiosity in the social square has been going a long time and it's working. At the same time, you have a rising social machinery of urban Catholics and urban Jews. And so it, it's, it's now competition. And so I think that's one of the reasons why you see the people fighting so hard for things like prohibition. And so the, the image of the Hail Mary is important. It's like we have to fix this right now or look what might happen if we don't. We need to limit immigration right now, or look what might happen if we don't. And what's interesting is that lasts into the, the, the 1930s, um, well into Franklin Roosevelt's um, uh, uh, presidency. You have, you have real fears over that. Great. Uh, I'm sure we could continue to discuss uh, many questions, and I would love to have you on board uh, to delve deeper into this question, but I think uh, uh, you've given me and you've given my listeners a, a, a great survey of uh, the fears and hopes and achievements and uh, difficulties of Protestant America in this era. Dr. Smith, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, Avi.